0: Make sure you stay till the end of the video to hear bloopers from tonight's story. The Dent Smile by F. Marion Crawford. Chapter one. Sir Hugh Ockram smiled as he sat by the open window of his study in the late August afternoon. And just then, a curiously yellow cloud obscured the low sun, and the clear summer light turned lurid, as if it had been suddenly poisoned and polluted by the foul vapors of a plague. Sir Hugh's face seemed, at best, to be made of fine parchment drawn skin-tight over a wooden mask, in which two eyes were sunk out of sight and peered from far within through crevices under the slanting, wrinkled lids, alive and watchful like two toads in their holes, side by side and exactly alike. But as the light changed, then a little yellow glare flashed in each. Nurse MacDonald said once when Sir Hugh smiled, he saw the faces of two women in hell. Two dead women he had betrayed. Nurse MacDonald was a hundred years old, and the smile widened, stretching the pale lips across the discolored teeth in an expression of profound self-satisfaction, blended with the most unforgiving hatred and contempt for the human doll. The hideous disease of which he was dying had touched his brain. His son stood beside him, tall, white, and delicate as an angel in a primitive picture. And though there was deep distress in his violet eyes as he looked at his father's face, he felt the shadow of that sickening smile stealing across his own lips and parting them and drawing them against his will. And it was like a bad dream, for he tried not to smile and smiled the more. Beside him, strangely like him in her wan angelic beauty, with the same shadowy golden hair, the same sad violet eyes, the same luminously pale face, Evelyn Warburton rested one hand upon his arm. And as she looked into her uncle's eyes and could not turn her own away, she knew that the deathly smile was hovering on her own red lips, drawing them tightly across her little teeth, while two bright tears ran down her cheeks to her mouth and dropped from the upper to the lower lip while she smiled and the smile was like the shadow of death and the seal of damnation upon her pure, young face. "'Of course,' said Sir Hugh very slowly and still looking out at the trees. "'If you have made up your mind to be married, "'I cannot hinder you, "'and I don't suppose you attach the smallest importance to my consent?' "'Father!' exclaimed Gabriel reproachfully. "'No, I do not deceive myself,' continued the old man, smiling terribly." You will marry when I am dead, though there is a very good reason why you had better not. Why you had better not, he repeated very emphatically, and he slowly turned his toad eyes upon the lovers. What reason? asked Evelyn in a frightened voice. Never mind the reason, my dear. You will marry just as if it did not exist. There was a long pause. Two gone, he said, his voice lowering strangely. And two more will be four, all together, forever and ever, burning, burning, burning bright. At the last words, his head sank slowly back, and the little glare of toad eyes disappeared under the swollen lids, and the lurid cloud passed from the westering sun so that the earth was green again and the light pure. Sir Hugh had fallen asleep as he often did in his last illness, even while speaking. Gabriel Akram drew Evelyn away, and from the study they went out into the dim hall, softly closing the door behind them, and each audibly drew breath, as though some sudden danger had been passed. They laid their hands, each in the others, and their strangely like eyes, met in a long look in which love and perfect understanding were darkened by the secret terror of an unknown thing. Their pale faces reflected each other's fear. "'It's his secret,' said Evelyn at last. "'He'll never tell us what it is.' "'If he dies with it,' answered Gabriel, "'let it be on his own head.' "'On his head,' echoed the dim hall. "'It was a strange echo, and some were frightened by it, "'for they said that if it were a real echo it should repeat everything "'and not give back a phrase here and there, now speaking, now silent.' but Nurse MacDonald said that the Great Hall would never echo a prayer when Ockram was to die, though it would give back curses, ten for one. On his head, it repeated quite softly, and Evelyn started and looked round. It is only the echo, said Gabriel, leading her away. They went out into the late afternoon light and sat upon a stone seat behind the chapel, which was built across the end of the east wing. It was very still, not a breath stirred, and there was no sound near them. Only far off the park, a songbird was whistling the high prelude to the evening chorus. It's very lonely here, said Evelyn, taking Gabriel's hand nervously and speaking as if she dreaded to disturb the silence. If it were dark, I should be afraid. Of what? Of me? Gabriel's sad eyes turned to her. Oh no! How could I be afraid of you? But of the old Akrams. They say they are just under our feet here in the north vault outside the chapel, all in their shrouds with no coffins as they used to bury him. And they always will, as they will bury my father and me. They say an ochron will not lie in a coffin. But it cannot be true. These are fairy tales, ghost stories. Evelyn nestled nearer to her companion, grasping his hand more tightly, and the sun began to go down. Of course, but there is the story of old Sir Vernon, who was beheaded for treason under James II. The family brought his body back from the scaffold in an iron coffin with heavy locks, and they put it in the north vault. But ever afterward, whenever the vault was open to bury another of the family, they found the coffin wide open, and the body standing upright against the wall, and the head rolled away in a corner, smiling at it. As Uncle Hugh smiles, Evelyn shivered. Yes, I suppose so, answered Gabriel thoughtfully. Of course, I never saw it, and the vault has not been open for thirty years. None of us have died since then. And if... And if... If Uncle Hugh dies, shall you? Evelyn stopped, and her beautiful thin face was quite white. Yes. I shall see him laid there, too, with his secret, whatever it is. Gabriel sighed and pressed the girl's little hand. I do not like to think of it, she said unsteadily. Oh, Gabriel, what can the secret be? He said we had better not marry. Not that he forbade it, but he said it so strangely. And he smiled. Ugh. Her small white teeth chattered with fear as she looked over her shoulder while drawing still closer to Gabriel. And somehow, I felt it on my own face. So did I, answered Gabriel in a low, nervous voice. Nurse MacDonald, he stopped abruptly. What? What did she say? Uh, Nothing. She's told me things. They would frighten you, dear. Come, it's growing chilly. He rose, but Evelyn held his hand in both of hers, still sitting and looking up to his face. We shall be married just the same, Gabriel. Say that we shall... Of course, darling, of course. But while my father is so very ill, it is impossible. Oh, Gabriel, Gabriel, dear, I wish we were married now, cried Evelyn in sudden distress. I know that something will prevent it and keep us apart. Nothing shall. Nothing? Nothing human, said Gabriel Ockram as she drew him down to her and their faces that were so strangely alike met and touched, and Gabriel knew that this kiss had a marvelous savor of evil, but on Evelyn's lips it was like the cool breath of a sweet and mortal fear. Neither of them understood, for they were innocent and young. Yet she drew him to her by her lightest touch, as a sensitive plant shivers and waves its thin leaves and bends and closes softly upon what it wants. And he let himself be drawn to her willingly, as he would if her touch had been deadly and poisonous. For she strangely loved that half-voluptuous breath of fear, and he passionately described with the nameless evil something that lurked in her maiden lips. It is as if we loved in a strange dream, she said. I fear the waking, he murmured. We shall not wake, dear. When the dream is over, it will have already turned into death, so softly that we shall not know it. But until then... She paused and her eyes sought his, and their faces slowly came nearer. It was as if they had thoughts in their red lips that foresaw and foreknew the deep kiss of each other. Until then, she said again, very low, and her mouth was nearer to his. Dream, till then, murmured his breath. Chapter 2 Nurse MacDonald was a hundred years old. She used to sleep sitting still, bent together in a great old leather and armchair with wings, her feet up in a bag, footstool lined with sheepskin, and many warm blankets wrapped about her, even in summer. Beside her, a little lamp always burned at night by an old silver cup in which there was something to drink. Her face was very wrinkled, but the wrinkles were so small and fine and near together that they made shadows instead of lines. Two thin locks of hair that was turning from white to a smoky yellow again were drawn over her temples from under the starched white cap. Every now and then she woke, and her eyelids were drawn up in tiny folds like little pink silk curtains, and her queer blue eyes looked straight before her through doors and walls and worlds too far place beyond. Then she slept again, and her hands lay one upon the other on the edge of the blanket. The thumbs had grown longer than the fingers with age, and the joints shone in the low lamplight like polished crab apples. It was nearly one o'clock in the night, and the summer breeze was blowing the ivy branch against the panes of window with a hushing caress. In the small room beyond, with the door ajar, the girl maid who took care of Nurse MacDonald was fast asleep. All was very quiet. The old woman breathed regularly, and her indrawn lips trembled each time as the breath went out, and her eyes were shut. But outside the closed window there was a face, and violent eyes were looking steadily at the ancient sleeper, for it was like the face of Evelyn Warburton, though there were eighty feet from the sill of the window to the foot of the tower. Yet the cheeks were thinner than Evelyn's, and as white as a gleam, and the eyes stared, and the lips were not red with life, they were dead painted with new blood. Slowly, Nurse MacDonald's wrinkled eyelids folded themselves back, and she looked straight at the face in the window, while one might count ten. Is it time? She asked in her little old, faraway voice. While she looked, the face at the window changed, for the eyes opened wider and wider till the white glared all round the bright violet, and the bloody lips opened over gleaming teeth and stretched and widened and stretched again, and the shadowy golden hair rose and streamed against the window in the night breeze. And in answer to Nurse MacDonald's question came the sound that freezes the living flesh. That low, moaning voice that rises suddenly like the scream of storm, from a moan to a wail, from a wail to a howl, from a howl to the fierce shriek of the tortured dead. He who has heard knows, and he can bear witness that the cry of the Banshee is an evil cry to hear alone in the deep night. When it was over, the face was gone. Nurse MacDonald shook a little in her great chair, and she still looked at the black square of the window, but there was nothing more there, nothing but the night and the whispering ivy branch. She turned her head to the door that was ajar, and there stood the girl in her white gown, her teeth chattering with fright. "'It's time, child,' said Nurse MacDonald. "'I must go to him, for it is the end.' She rose slowly leaning her withered hands upon the arms of the chair, and the girl brought her a woolen gown and a great mantle and her crunch stick and made her ready. But very often the girl looked at the window and was unjointed with fear, and often Nurse MacDonald shook her head and said the words which the maid could not understand. It was like the face of Miss Evelyn, said the girl at last, trembling. But the ancient woman looked up sharply and angrily, and her queer blue eyes glared. She held herself by the arm of the great chair with her left hand and lifted up her crutch stick to strike the maid with all her might, but she did not. You're a good girl, she said, but you're a fool. Pray for wit, child, pray for wit, or else find service in another house in Ockram Hall. Bring the lamp and help me under my left arm. The crutch stick clacked on the wooden floor. And the low heels of the woman's slippers clappered after her in slow triplets as Nurse Macdonald got toward the door. And down the stairs, each step she took was labor in itself, and by the clacking noise the walking servants knew that she was coming very long before they saw her. No one was sleeping now, and there were lights and whisperings and pale faces in the corridors near Sir Hugh's bedroom. And now someone went in, and now someone came out, but everyone made way for Nurse MacDonald, who had nursed Sir Hugh's father more than eighty years ago. The light was soft and clear in the room. There stood Gabriel Ockram by his father's bedside, and there knelt Evelyn Warburton, her hair lying like a golden shadow down her shoulders, and her hands clasped nervously together. And opposite Gabriel, a nurse, was trying to make Sir Hugh drink but he would not, and though his lips were parted, his teeth were set. He was very, very thin and yellow now, and his eyes caught the light sideways and were as yellow coals. Not torment him, said Nurse MacDonald to the woman who held the cup. Let me speak to him, for his hour has come. Let her speak to him, said Gabriel in a dull voice. So the ancient woman leaned to the pillow and laid the feather weight of her withered hand that was like a brown moth upon Sir Hugh's yellow fingers, and spoke to him earnestly while only Gabriel and Evelyn were left in the room to hear. "'Hugh Ockram,' she said, "'this is the end of your life, and I saw you born, I saw your father born before you. I am come to see you die, Hugh Ockraman. Will you tell me the truth?' The dying man recognized the little faraway voice he had known all his life, and he very slowly turned his yellow face to Nurse MacDonald. But he said nothing. Then she spoke again. Hugh Ockren, you will never see the daylight again. Will you tell the truth? His toad-like eyes were not yet dull. They fastened themselves on her face. "'What do you want of me?' he asked, and each word struck hollow upon the last. "'I have no secrets. I have lived a good life.' Nurse MacDonald laughed, a tiny, cracked laugh that made her old head bob and tremble a little as if her neck were on a steel spring. But Sir Hugh's eyes grew red and his pale lips began to twist. "'Let me die in peace,' he said slowly. But Nurse MacDonald shook her head and her brown, moth-like hand left his and fluttered to his forehead. "'By the mother that bore you and died of grief, for sins you did, tell me the truth!' Sir Hugh's lips tightened on his discolored teeth. "'Not on earth,' he answered slowly. "'By the wife who bore your son and died heartbroken, tell me the truth!' Neither to you in life, nor to her in internal death. His lips writhed as if the words were coals between them, and a great drop of sweat rolled across the parchment of his forehead. Gabriel Akram bit his hand as he watched his father die, but Nurse MacDonald spoke a third time. By the woman who you betrayed and who waits for you this night, you Akram, tell me the truth. It is too late. Let me die in peace. The writhing lips began to smile across the set yellow teeth, and the toad eyes glowed like evil jewels in his head. There is time, said the ancient woman. Tell me the name of Evelyn Warburton's father, then I will let you die in peace. Evelyn started back, kneeling as she was, and stared at Nurse MacDonald and then at her uncle. The name of Evelyn's father. He repeated slowly while the awful smile spread upon his dying face. The light was growing strangely dim in the great room. As Evelyn looked, Nurse MacDonald's crooked shadow on the wall grew gigantic. Sir Hugh's breath came thick, rattling in his throat as death crept like a snake and choked it back. Evelyn prayed aloud, high and clear. Then something rapped at the window, and she felt her hair rise upon her head in a cool breeze, and she looked around in spite of herself. When she saw her own white face looking in at the window, and her own eyes staring at her through the glass, wide and fearful, and her own hair streaming against the pane, and her own lips dashed with blood, she rose slowly from the floor and stood rigid for one moment till she screamed once and fell straight back into Gabriel's arms but the shriek that answered hers was the fierce shriek of the tormented corpse out of which the soul cannot pass for shame of deadly sins through the devil's fight and it with corruption, each for their due share. Sir Hugh Ackerman sat upright in his deathbed and saw and cried aloud. Evelyn! His harsh voice broke and rattled in his chest as he sank down but still Nurse MacDonald tortured him for there was little life left in him still. You have seen the mother as she waits for you, Hugh Ockram. Who was this girl Evelyn's father? What was his name? For the last time the dreadful smile came upon the twisted lips very slowly, very surely now, and the toad eyes glared red and the parchment face glowed a little in the flickering light. For the last time words came, They know it in hell. Then the glowing eyes went out quickly. The yellow face turned waxen pale, and a great shiver ran through the thin body as Hugh Ockram died. But in death he still smiled, for he knew his secret and kept it still on the other side, and he would take it with him, to lie with him forever in the north vault of the chapel where the Ockrams lie, unconfined in their shrouds, all but one. Though he was dead, he smiled, for he had kept his treasure of evil truth to the end, and there was none left to tell the name he had spoken, but there was all the evil he had not undone left to bear fruit. As they watched Nurse MacDonald and Gabriel, who held Evelyn still unconscious in his arms while he looked at the father, they felt the dead smile crawling across their own lips, the ancient crone and the youth of the angel's face. And they shivered a little, and both looked at Evelyn as she lay with her head on his shoulder. And though she was very beautiful, the same sickening smile was twisting her young mouth, too. And it was like the foreshadowing of a great evil which they could not understand. But by and by they carried Evelyn out, and she opened her eyes, and the smile was gone. From far away in the great house, the sound of weeping and crooning came up the stairs and echoed along the dismal corridors, for the women had begun to mourn the dead master after the Irish fashion, and the hall had echoes of its own with all that night, like the far-off wail of the banshee amongst forest trees. When the time was come, they took Sir Hugh and his winding sheet on a trestle bear and bore him to the chapel and through the iron door and down the long descent to the north vault with tapers to lay him by his father. And two men went in first to prepare the place, and came back staggering like drunken men and white, leaving their lights behind them. But Gabriel Ockram was not afraid, for he knew. And he went in alone, and saw the body of Sir Vernon Ockram was leaning upright against the stone wall, and that its head lay on the ground nearby with the face turned up, and the dried leathern lips smiled horribly at the dried-up corpse, while the iron coffin lined with black velvet stood open on the floor. Then Gabriel took the thing in his hands, for it was very light, being quite dried by the air of the vault, and those who peeped in from the door saw him lay it in the coffin again, and rustled a little like a bundle of reeds, and sounded hollow as it touched the sides and the bottom." He also placed the head upon the shoulders and shut the lid, which fell with a rusty spring that snapped. After they laid Sir Hugh beside his father with the trestle beer on which they had brought him, and they went back to the chapel. But when they saw one another's faces, master and men, they were all smiling, with the dead smile of the corpse they had left in the vault, so that they could not bear to look at one another until it had faded away. Chapter 3 Gabriel Ockram became Sir Gabriel, inheriting the baronetcy with the half-ruined fortune left by his father, and still, Evelyn Warburton lived at Ockram Hall, in the south room that had been hers ever since she could remember anything. She could not go away, for there were no relatives to whom she could have gone, and besides, there seemed to be no reason why she should not stay. The world would never trouble itself to care what the Ockrams did in their Irish estates, and it was long since the Ockrams had asked anything of the world. So, Sir Gabriel took his father's place at the dark old table in the dining room, and Evelyn sat opposite to him until such time as their mourning should be over, and they might be married at last. And meanwhile, their lives went on as before, since Sir Hugh had been a hopeless invalid during the last year of his life, and they had seen him but once a day for a little while, spending most of their time together in a strangely perfect companionship. But though the late summer saddened into autumn, and autumn darkened into winter, and storm followed storm, and rain poured on rain through the short days and the long nights, yet Ockram Hall seemed less gloomy, since Sir Hugh had been laid in the north vault beside his father. And at Christmas-tide Evelyn decked the great hall with holly and green bows, and huge fires blazed on every hearth. Then the tenants were all bidden to a New Year's dinner, and they ate and drank well, while Sir Gabriel sat at the head of the table. Evelyn came in when the poured wine was brought, and the most respected of the tenants made a speech to propose her health. It was long, he said, since there had been a Lady Ockram. Sir Gabriel shaded his eyes with his hands and looked down at the table, but a faint color came into Evelyn's transparent cheeks. But, said the gray-haired farmer, it was longer still since there had been a lady Ockram so fair as the next was to be, and he gave the health of Evelyn Warburton. Then all the tenants stood up and shouted for her, and Sir Gabriel stood up likewise beside Evelyn. And when the men gave their last and loudest cheer of all, there was a voice not theirs above them all, higher, fiercer, louder, a scream, not earthly, shrieking for the bride of Ockram Hall. And the holly and the green boughs over the great chimney-piece shook and slowly waved as if a cool breeze were blowing over them. But the men turned very pale, and many of them set down their glasses, but others let them fall upon the floor in fear. And looking into one another's faces, they were all smiling strangely, a dead smile, like dead Sir Hugh's. One cried out words in Irish, and the fear of death was suddenly upon them all, so that they fled in panic, falling over one another like wild beasts in the burning forest when the thick smoke runs along before the flame. The tables were overset, and drinking glasses and bottles were broken in heaps, and the dark red wine crawled like blood upon the polished floor. Sir Gabriel and Evelyn stood alone at the head of the table before the wreck of the feast, not daring to turn to see each other, for each knew that the other smiled. But his right arm held her, and his left hand clasped her right as they stared before them, and but for the shadows of her hair one might not have told their two faces apart. They listened long. But the cry came not again, and the dead smile faded from their lips, while each remembered that Sir Hugh Ockram lay in the north vault, smiling in his winding sheet in the dark because he had died with his secret. So ended the tenants' New Year's dinner. But from that time on, Sir Gabriel grew more and more silent, and his face grew ever paler and thinner than before. Often without warning, without words, he'd rise from his seat as if something moved him against his will, and he could go out to the rain or the sunshine to the north side of the chapel and sit on the stone bench, staring at the ground as if he could see through it and through the vault below and through the white, winding sheet in the dark to the dead smile that would not die. Always when he went out that way, Evelyn came out presently and sat beside him. Once, too, as in summer, their beautiful faces came suddenly near, and their lips drooped, and their red lips were almost joined together. But as their eyes met, they grew wide and wild, so that the white showed in a ring all round the deep violet, and their teeth chattered, and their hands were like the hands of corpses, each in the others, for the terror of what was under their feet, and what they knew but could not see. Once also Evelyn found Sir Gabriel in the chapel alone, standing before the iron door that led down to the place of death, and in his hand there was the key to the door, but he had not put it into the lock. Evelyn drew him away, shivering, for she had also been driven in waking dreams to see that terrible thing again, and to find out whether it had changed since it had lain there. I'm going mad, said Sir Gabriel, covering his eyes with his hand as he went with her. I see it in my sleep. I see it when I'm awake. It draws me to a day and night, and unless I see it, I shall die. I know, answered Evelyn. I know. It's as if threads were spun from it, like a spider's drawing us down to it. She was silent for a moment, and then she started violently and grasped his arm with the man's strength and almost screamed the words she spoke. But we must not go there she cried, we must not go. Sir Gabriel's eyes were half shut, and he was not moved by the agony of her face. I shall die unless I see it again, he said, in a quiet voice not like his own. And all that day and that evening he scarcely spoke, thinking of it, always thinking, while Evelyn Warburton quivered from head to foot with a terror she had never known. She went alone on a gray winter's morning to Nurse MacDonald's room in their tower and sat upon the great leathern easy chair, laying her thin white hand upon the withered fingers. "'Nurse,' she said, "'what is it that Uncle Hugh should have told you the night before he died? "'It must have been an awful secret, and yet, though you asked him, "'I feel somebody that you know it and that you know why he used to smile so dreadfully.' The old woman's head moved slowly from side to side. "'I only guess.' "'I shall never know,' she answered slowly in her cracked little voice. "'But what do you guess? Who am I? Why did you ask who my father was? You know I'm Colonel Warburton's daughter, and my mother was Lady Alcrum's sister, so that Gabriel and I are cousins. My father was killed in Afghanistan. What secret can there be?' "'I do not know. I can only guess. Guess what?' asked Evelyn imploringly, and pressing the soft, withered hands as she leaned forward. But Nurse MacDonald's wrinkled lids dropped suddenly over her queer blue eyes, and her lips shook a little with her breath as if she were asleep. Evelyn waited. By the fire, the Irish maid was knitting fast, and the needles clicked like three or four clocks ticking against each other, and the real clock on the wall solemnly ticked alone, checking off the seconds of the woman who was a hundred years old and had not many days left. Outside, the ivy branch beat the window in the wintry blast as it had beaten against the glass a hundred years ago. Then as Evelyn sat there, she felt again the waking of a horrible desire, the sickening wish to go down, down to the thing in the north vault, and open the winding sheet and see whether it had changed she held Nurse MacDonald's hand as if to keep herself in place and fight against the appalling attraction of the evil dead. But the old cat that kept Nurse MacDonald's feet warm, lying always on the back footstool, got up and stretched itself, and looked up into Evelyn's eyes while its back arched, and its tail thickened and bristled, and its ugly pink lips drew back in a devilish grin, showing its sharp teeth. Evelyn stared at it, half fascinated by its ugliness, and the creature suddenly put out one paw with all its claws spread and spat at the girl and all at once the grinning cat was like the smiling corpse far down below so that Evelyn shivered down to her small feet and covered her face with her free hand lest Nurse MacDonald should wake and see the dead smile there for she could feel it. The old woman had already opened her eyes again, and she touched her cat with the end of her crutch stick. whereupon its back went down, its tail shrunk, and it silded back into its place on the back footstool. But its yellow eyes looked up sideways at Evelyn, between the slits of its lids. What is that you guessed, nurse? asked the young girl again. A bad thing. A wicked thing. But I dare not tell you, lest it might not be true and the very thought should blast your life. For if I guess right, he meant that you should not know and that you two should marry and pay for his old sin with your souls. He used to tell us that we ought not to marry. Yes, he told you that, perhaps. But was as if a man put poisoned meat before a starving beast and said do not eat, but never raised his hand to take the meat away? And if he told you that you should not marry, it was because he hoped you would. For all of men living or dead, Hugh Ockram was the falsest man that ever told a cowardly lie, and the cruelest that ever hurt a weak woman, and the worst that ever loved a sin. But Gabriel and I love each other, Evelyn said very sadly. Nurse MacDonald's eyes looked far away at sights seen long ago and that rose-in-the-gray winter air amid the midst of an ancient youth. "'If you love, you can die together,' she said very slowly. "'Why should you live, if it is true? I am a hundred years old. What has life given me? The beginning is fire.' The end is a heap of ashes, and between the end and the beginning lies all the pain of the world. Let me sleep, since I cannot die." And the old woman's eyes closed again, and her head sank a little lower upon her breast. So Evelyn went away and left her asleep, with the cat asleep on the bag footstool. and The young girl tried to forget Nurse MacDonald's words, but she could not. For she heard them over and over again in the wind and behind her on the stairs. As she grew sick with fear of the frightful unknown, evil to which her soul was bound, she felt a bodily something pressing her and pushing her and forcing her on, and for the other side she felt threads that drew her mysteriously. When she shut her eyes, she saw in the chapel behind the altar the low iron door which she must pass to go to the thing. And as she lay awake at night, she drew the sheet over her face, lest she should see shadows on the wall beckoning to her. And the sound of her own warm breath made the whisperings in her ears, while she held the mattress with her hands to keep from getting up and going to the chapel. It would have been easier if there had not been a way to through the library by a door which was never locked. It would be fearfully easy to take her candle and go softly through the sleeping house and the key of the vaults lay under the altar behind a stone that turned. She knew the little secret. She could go alone and see. But when she thought of it, she felt her hair raise on her head, and first she shivered so that the bed shook, and then the horror went through her in a cold thrill that was agony again, like myriads of icy needles boring into her nerves. Chapter 4 The old clock in Nurse MacDonald's tower struck midnight. From her room she could hear the creaking chains and weight of their box in the corner of the staircase, and overhead the jarring of the rusty lever that lifted the hammer. She had heard it all of her life. It struck eleven strokes clearly and then came the twelfth, with a dull half-stroke as though the hammer were too wary to go on and had fallen asleep against the bell. The old cat got up from the back footstool and stretched itself, and Nurse MacDonald opened her ancient eyes and looked slowly round the room by the dim light of the night lamp. She touched the cat with her crutch stick and lay down upon her feet. She drank a few drops from her cup and went to sleep again. But downstairs, Sir Gabriel sat straight up as the clock struck, for he had dreamed a fearful dream of horror, and his heart stood still till he awoke at it stopping, and it beat again furiously with his breath like a wild thing set free. No Akram had ever known fear waking, but sometimes it came to Sir Gabriel in his sleep. He pressed his hands to his temples as he sat up in bed, and his hands were icy cold but his head was hot. The dream faded far and in its place there came the master thought that racked his life with the thought that also came the sick twisting of his lips in the dark that would have been a smile. Far off, Evelyn Warburton dreamed that the dead smile was on her mouth and awoke, starting with a little moan, her face in her hands shivering. But Sir Gabriel struck a light and got up and began to walk up and down his great room. It was midnight, and he'd barely slept an hour, and in the north of Ireland the winter nights were long. "'I shall go mad,' he said to himself, holding his forehead. He knew that it was true. For weeks and months the possession of the thing had grown upon him like a disease, till he could think of nothing without thinking first of that. And now, all at once, it outgrew his strength, and he knew that he must be its instrument or lose his mind.' That he must do the deed he hated and feared, and if he could fear anything, or that something would snap in his brain and divide him from life while he was yet alive. He took the candlestick in hand, the old-fashioned heavy candlestick that had always been used by the head of the house. He did not think of dressing, but went as he was, in his silk nightclothes and his slippers, and he opened the door. Everything was very still in the great old house. He shut the door behind him and walked noiselessly on the carpet through the long corridor. A cold breeze blew over his shoulder and blew the flame of his candle straight out from him. Instinctively he stopped and looked around, but all was still, and the upright flame burned steadily. He walked on, and instantly a strong draught was behind him, almost extinguishing the light. It seemed to blow him on his way, ceasing whenever he turned, coming again when he went on. Invisible. Icy. Down the great staircase to the echoing hall he went, seeing nothing but the flaring flame of the candle standing away from him over the guttering wax while the cold wind blew over his shoulder and through his hair. On he passed through the open door into the library, dark with old books and carved bookcases. On through the door and the shelves with painted shelves on it and the imitated back of books so that one needed to know where to find it and it shut itself after him with a soft click. He entered the low arched passage, and though the door was shut behind him and fitted tightly in its frame, still the cold breeze blew the flame forward as he walked, and he was not afraid. But his face was very pale, and his eyes were wide and bright, looking before him, seeing already in the dark air the picture of the thing beyond but in the chapel he stood still, his hand on the little turning-stone tablet in the back of the stone altar. On the tablet were engraved words, the key to the vault of the most illustrious Lords of Akram. Sir Gabriel paused and listened. He fancied that he'd heard a sound far off in the great house where all had been so still, but it did not come again. Yet he waited at the last and looked at the low iron door beyond it. Down the long descent lay his father unconfined, six months dead, corrupt, terrible in his clinging shroud. The strangely preserving air of the vaults could not have yet done its work completely. But on the thing's ghastly features, with their half-dried open eyes, there would still be the frightful smile with which the man had died. A smile that haunted. As the thought crossed Sir Gabriel's mind, he felt his lips writhing and struck his own mouth and wreath with the back of his hand so fiercely that a drop of blood ran down his chin and another and more falling back into the gloom upon the chapel pavement. But still, his bruised lips twisted themselves. He turned the tablet by the simple secret, it needed no safer fastening, for had each Akram been confined in pure gold and had the door been opened wide, there was not a man in Tyrone brave enough to go down to that place, saving Gabriel Akram himself, with his angel's face and his thin, white hands and his sad, unflinching eyes. He took the great old key and set it to the lock of the iron door, and the heavy, rattling noise echoed down the descent beyond like footsteps, as if a watcher had stood behind the iron and were running away with him with heavy dead feet. And though he was standing still, the cool wind was from behind him and blew the flame of the candle against the iron panel. He turned to the key. Sir Gabriel saw that his candle was short. There were new ones on the altar with long candlesticks, and he lit one and left his own burning on the floor. As he set it down on the pavement, his lip began to bleed again, and another drop fell upon the stones. He drew the iron door open and pushed it back against the chapel walls so that it should not shut off itself while he was within. And the horrible draught of the specular came up out of the depths in his face, foul and dark. He went in, but though the fented air met him, yet the flame of the tall candle was blown straight from him against the wind while he walked down the easily inclined with steady steps, his loose slippers slapping the pavement as he trod. He shaded the candle with his hand, and his fingers seemed to be made of wax and blood as the light shone through them. And in spite of him, the unearthly draught forced the flame forward till it was blue over the black wick, and it seemed as if it must go out. But he went straight on with shining eyes. The downward passage was wide, and he could not always see the walls by the struggling light, but he knew when he was in the place of death by the larger, drearier echo of his steps in the greater space, by the sensation of a distant blank wall. He stood still, almost enclosing the flame of the candle in the hollow of his hand. He could see a little, for his eyes were growing used to the gloom. Shadowy forms were outlined in the dimness where the beers of the Akram stood, crowded together side by side, each with its straight shrouded corpse strangely preserved by the dry air, like the empty shell that a locust sheds in summer. In a few stops before him he saw clearly the dark shape of a headless Sir Vernon's iron coffin, and he knew that nearest to it lay the thing he sought. He was as brave as any of those dead men had been, and they were his father's, and he knew that sooner or later he should die and lie there himself, beside Sir Hugh, slowly drawing to a parchment shell. But he was still alive, and he closed his eyes a moment, and three great drops stood on his forehead. Then he looked again. And by the whiteness of the winding sheet he knew his father's corpse, for all the others were brown with age, and moreover the flame of the candle was blown toward it. He made four steps till he reached it, and suddenly the light burned straight and high, shedding a dazzling yellow glare upon the fine linen that was all white, save over the face, and where the joined hands were laid on the breast." and at those places ugly stains had spread, darkened with outlines of the features and the tight, clasped fingers. There was a frightful stench of drying death. As Sir Gabriel looked down, something stirred behind him, softly at first, then more noisily, and something fell to the stone floor with a dull thud and rolled up to his feet. He started back and saw a withered head lying almost face upward on the pavement, grinning at him. He felt the cold sweat standing on his face, and his heart beat painfully. For the first time in all his life, that evil thing, which men call fear, was getting hold of him, checking his heartstrings as a cruel driver checks a quivering horse, clawing at his backbone with icy hands, lifting his hair with freezing breath, climbing up and gathering in his midriff with leaden weight. Yet presently, He bit his lip and bent down, holding the candle in one hand to lift the shroud back from the head of the corpse with the other. Slowly he lifted it. Then it clove to the half-dried skin of the face, and his hand shook as if someone had struck him on the elbow, but half in fear and half in anger at himself, he pulled it so that it came away with a little ripping sound. He caught his breath as he held it, not yet throwing it back and not yet looking. The horror was working in him, and he felt that old Vernon Ockram was standing up in his iron coffin, headless, yet watching him with the stump of his severed neck. While he held his breath, he felt the dead smile twisting his lips. In sudden wrath at his own misery, he tossed the death-stained linen backward and looked at last. He ground his teeth lest he should shriek aloud. There it was. The thing that haunted him, that haunted Evelyn Warburton, that was like a blight on all that came near him. The dead face was blotched with dark stains, and the thin gray hair was matted about the discolored forehead. The sunken lids were half open, and the candlelight gleamed on something foul where the toad eyes had lived. But yet, the dead thing smiled as it had smiled in life. Ghastly lips were parted and drawn wide and tied upon the wolfish teeth, cursing still and still defying hell to do its worst, defying, cursing and always and forever smiling alone and dark. Sir Gabriel opened the winding sheet where the hands were, and the black and withered fingers were closed upon something stained and mottled. Shivering from head to foot, but fighting like a man in agony for his life, he tried to take the packages from the dead man's hold. But as he pulled at it, the claw-like fingers seemed to close more tightly, and when he pulled harder, the shrunken hands and arms rose from the corpse with a horrible look of life following his motion. Then as he wrenched the sealed packet loose at least, the hands fell back into their place still folded. He set down the candle on the edge of the bier to break the seals from the stout paper, and kneeling on one knee to get a better light, he read what was within, written long ago in Sir Hugh's queer hand. He was no longer afraid. He read how Sir Hugh had written it all down that it might perchance be a witness of evil and of his hatred. How he had loved Evelyn Warburton, his wife's sister, and how his wife had died of a broken heart with his curse upon her, and how Warburton and he had fought side by side in Afghanistan, and Warburton had fallen, but Akram had brought his comrade's wife back a full year later, and little Evelyn, her child, had been born in Akram Hall, and next how he had wearied of the mother, and she had died like her sister with the curse on her, and then how Evelyn had been brought up as his niece, and how he had trusted that his son Gabriel and his daughter, innocent and unknowing, might love and marry, and the souls of the women he had betrayed might suffer another anguish before eternity was out. And last of all, he hoped that some day, when nothing could be undone, that two might find his writing and live on, not daring to tell the truth of their children's sake and the world's word, man and wife. This he read, kneeling beside the corpse in the north vault by the light of the altar candle, and when he read it all, he thanked God aloud that he had found the secret in time, but when he rose to his feet and looked down at the dead face, it was changed, the smile was gone from it forever, and the jaw had fallen a little, and the tired, dead lips were relaxed. And then there was a breath behind him and close to him, not cold like which had blown the flame of the candle as he came, but warm and human. He turned suddenly. There she stood all in white with her shadowy golden hair, for she had risen from her bed and had followed him noiselessly and found him reading and had herself read over his shoulder. He started violently when he saw her, for his nerves were unstrung, and then he cried out her name in the still place of death. Evelyn! My brother! She answered softly and tenderly, putting out both hands to meet his. The Dead Smile by F. Marion Crawford. Why the fuck did I say it like that? Drawing them tightly across her little teeth while two bright tears... Fuck! It's his secret, said Evelyn at last. (laughs) It's his secret, said Evelyn (laughs)